Hello and welcome to Nurturing Resilience. I'm Leisha Nelson. This is a podcast for cultivating connection, belonging, and safety through stories of triumph and post-traumatic growth, sprinkled with a little bit of magic. I am so glad you have joined me. Let's dive into today's podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome. Today on this show, I am so excited to introduce you to my dear, dear friend, Lori Kinsey. Lori Kinsey is known as an advanced spiral practitioner. And knowing her, I definitely know that she strives to lead from a place of integrity that enables all of her clients to expand into their most authentic self. She has the ability to hold a safe and strong container because she's done so much work herself in the areas of domestic violence and human trafficking. And as you'll find out, Lori is a domestic abuse survivor, and she really has a goal to help others heal from the soul level, from a place of compassion and trust. She has a special interest in supporting conscious leaders who desire to design and create their own vision. She has a gift in diving deep with people and breaking through the limiting beliefs that might be holding them back from their high performance. And she really helps people embody the legacy that they are meant to live in this world. Lori is just a gem. And as I said, we start out the podcast going into her story about domestic abuse. So trigger warning, today's podcast is about domestic abuse. There are some minor to mild details that she does go into and go over. So just want to warn any of my listeners about that. But beyond talking about her amazing story, and her story will blow you away, uh, At the end, she really goes into this beautiful conversation with me talking about why we do deep processing work, the importance of it, what it means to really work through the eye of the storm and her continual devotion and motivation to work through these hard times that we might have. Like, why do we do this deep processing work And Lori speaks to that so beautifully and so clearly and just gives such great advice at the end of the podcast. So although this is a long one, it's definitely worth tuning into both aspects. The beginning where she shares her own story of domestic abuse and how she overcame that. And then at the end where we have a beautiful discussion into deep work and overcoming your traumas. So I hope you enjoy. Lori is just a dear, dear soul. Let's get started. All right, Lori, thank you for joining me today and for jumping on this podcast and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm really excited too. So I am going to quickly start out by letting our listeners know how we met each other and 
it was a couple of years ago. You and I are both uh, what's called spiral practitioners and have gone through the spiral practitioner training. And I was in California supporting a spiral practitioner training and you and a few others came in the room uh, to learn the modality and become a practitioner. And you were from Utah and I was from Utah. And then there ended up being like five of us from Utah. We totally dominated the room, the Utah spiral crew. (laughs) (laughs) And I was so excited to have, at the time, it was just me and my husband that were the only practitioners. And it was so exciting to meet others that would be in Utah. And because of that, the five of us really, are there five of us, I think? So like five or six, five yeah. Or six, mm-hmm. might be more now, but at the time I was like, yes, there's a crew here. And we started getting together monthly, I think, and just, and started doing Zoom calls and really created a support system for each other, this, this group of us, um, as we moved through this really intense modality and started to move through really big changes in our lives. I feel like you and I have seen and been there through some really big changes in our lives. <laughs> big. It feels like lifetimes ago. <laughs> right? I know it wasn't that long ago and it feels so long ago. Um, I think it was in 2019. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Summer of 2019. Yeah. So that's when we met. Mm-hmm. And man, because because this work is so deep, the spiral work is so deep, the emotional clearing modality. Um, I just feel like, you know, so much about me. (laughs) Same. (laughs) And I know so much about you. (laughs) And, um, you know, I realized that I've never actually heard your story, like your story in entirety, working through and dealing with domestic abuse. Um, and so you and I started chatting about having you on this podcast and it just was a full body. Yes. For me of having you on here to share your story. And I'm excited because for me, this is the first time I've heard bits and pieces, but I've never actually heard the whole thing. So, uh, we were chatting before we got started and we decided to start essentially with, with your marriage, kind of the marriage you're remarried now. You have since gotten out of that relationship. So we're going to backtrack into, yeah, that, that marriage. It was your first marriage. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first yeah. marriage with your now ex and with whom you had children with. Yes. Two, two kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can just start kind of where you want, whether it's where you guys met or years later into the marriage, whatever feels feels good to you. I'll turn it over to you. <laughs> I still find it hard to believe with everything that we've gone through together <laughs> that you haven't heard this piece. So I'm so honored to actually be here and be on your podcast with you. And thank you for allowing me to share my story. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important that people hear the details. I will say the details because I was in um, my first marriage for 11 years and I had no idea that I was, first of all, in an abusive relationship. 
and second of all, in a very violent one that was an extreme case. So um, that is what I like to do now is educate people on relationships and healthy relationships and what they look like. Because I look the same, I sound the same, I look the same, I have the same energy that I did back then, but I was severely controlled and was not able to be myself at all. In fact, I was, I was actually told to be invisible quite often. So, um, let's see, where do we even begin? Um, I guess I can just give a little background on me personally, because whenever, whenever people do find out or did find out about this, that knew me back then, I, I wasn't believed. I actually wasn't believed when it all started to come out. And a lot of people wanted me to actually stay in the marriage. Wow. Um, They encouraged you to stay. They encouraged me to stay. Wow. Even though my life was being threatened, um, my children's lives are being threatened. I mean, all kinds of things. So, um, I guess I should just say that I'm the type of person that has a lot of self-confidence. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of self-confidence. I have a lot of drive. I have a lot of will. I'm really social. I'm that social butterfly. So I talk to anybody and everybody. Um, I am very successful in pretty much any career choice I've ever chosen, like anything that I've ever been, I've been really successful. And if you think about, like I own my, I owned my own home. I had, I know this sounds crazy to bring in credit, but I had good credit. Like I was a responsible person. I was, I was all these, like I looked very normal. I had a very normal life. So from the outside, I actually looked like I had a perfect life. Mm. You know, I had a very, like I owned my own home. I had animals. I had two kids. I had a marriage (laughs) that lasted more than a decade because, you know, any marriage that lasts a long time seems to be a successful marriage. But the reality of it was that um, I was controlled and abused in in every single way. I I would say Um, this is, we can go further into this part of the story, but I actually was abused in every single way, except for sexually that I did not experience. So it was financially, emotionally, physically, definitely energetically. I mean, mentally, mentally. Yes. And did this, did it start like in the beginning? Like, was it like, from the beginning, day one, this abuse was happening, or was it a progression leading up to this kind of extreme control? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, of course not. <laughs> like, why would I be with anybody that was going to be abusive in any way or treat me badly in any way? Um, I think with all abuse, that actually does start very gradual. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, they're quite charming. Usually it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman because anyone can be um, an abuser or be um, a perpetrator or an offender. And it does, it happens, they're very charming, they're very fun, they they are known to rescue you from things. I mean, I was rescued, (laughs) I was rescued from a situation. Um, I knew my ex-husband an entire year before we ever even started to see each other on a romantic level or an intimate level. And then it took, we kind of did everything backwards on purpose before I actually even married him. 
Like we bought, we bought a house. We had our child. She was planned <laughs> and everything. I mean, prior to me actually marrying him. Wow. So it all just happened extremely gradual. Um, Do you think in that way, that might be some other reason why you didn't really recognize it happening is because it was so gradual. It's almost like a mind fuck. Oh, it's a total mind fuck. <laughs> it's a total mind fuck because what happens is, you know, you, you start to become intimate and you have this relationship even as friends, right? He was one of my best friends for an entire year. And even as friends, like all the things that they say they like about you and they enjoy about you, all of a sudden they're asking you not to do those things. And one of the first things was, um, he loved my, my social, like how I was able to just adapt to any social situation. And I was, I would just make friends with anybody that was there. But then the more serious we became, that was actually one of the first things he started shutting down. All of a sudden he became very jealous mm -hmm. and he would tell me that it was for my safety and for, you know, for the goodness of me, I guess, that I had to, I don't know, he would just get super jealous. He's, I had to cut people out of my life. They've been part of my childhood just because they were men. And then it turned into all of the females too. And so they start to just really isolate you. It's what tends to happen because they also do that with family members. Um, did he do he, that with your family as well? Or just he did, yeah. He did. He did. We, we actually moved away from our families. Both of our families lived in the same town and he, we moved away from our families, but we moved to a place where he actually did have a history and he did have friends, mm -hmm. but I did not, I did not have any. So, and this is all, you know, now that I know what I know about abuse and what happens and the patterns and everything, the generational and all of it it's very textbook like everything that i'm saying somebody else is going to resonate with a hundred percent like all of these little steps They're, it's very textbook so kind of so the first part of the textbook is that they slowly start to control you and in your case it was it was socially first kind of more mm -hmm. isolating you yeah and then what's the, like, how does that then progress? And you kind of continue to stay in it without recognizing yeah. what's happening. Yeah, because it's almost like they put you on this pedestal with that jealousy, right? They put you on this pedestal and they start to say that, you know, I just love you so much. And I just don't want you to be, you know, I don't want anybody else to see you the way I see you, that type of thing. Um, when it comes to friendships, they'll get really jealous about your other friendships and how close you are to other people. And then all of a sudden it becomes about them and then saying, oh, you're not spending enough time with me. I don't have enough attention, that type of thing. And then family, it, it usually some kind of conflict will happen or some kind of story will start to be told where, um, they don't. Someone in the family doesn't like, you know, your family doesn't like me. That was not really the case with, with my ex-husband. Um, it was more, he started to have issues with one of my brothers. And so it was just, 
they start to isolate you more and more where we're going, you know, we end up going to more of his family functions than we did to mine. So isolation is a, is a big red flag if they start to do that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then how did it continue to progress? I mean, you were with him for 11 years, married. Mm-hmm. So you were mm-hmm. with him longer than that, but married 11 years. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> it just, it started to slowly progress with like, you see me with my hair down all the time. Probably you've probably mm-hmm. never, unless I have it up in like my sticks or something like that. I could never have my hair down unless I was on a date actually with him. And like, how does that, how does that work? Like he just says to you, you need to wear your hair up and you say, okay, tell me more. He just basically would say that, um, I was trying to impress somebody. Mm. So that's another thing because the jealousy starts to progress. So he would say, you know, your hair looks, you know, you look really sexy today. You look really sexy today. So, so who are you trying to impress? So that's kind of the route that that goes down. So, um, I got to a point where I started to notice that it was when I wore my hair down that, so he must've really just enjoyed my, you know, he was probably attracted to women that wear their hair down and mm-hmm. used to proudly associate that with attraction. Um, so I'd always have my, my sides pulled up. I'd have my sides pulled up. I'd have it back in a ponytail, a, you know, a messy bun, anything like that. Um, it got to the point where I couldn't wear perfume or scents like scented lotion, like nothing like that, because I was trying to impress somebody. I was trying to get somebody's attention. Um, I'm trying to even think like, how does it progressively get that way? It was, it just any kind of physical affection, like, you know, like, you know, me really well. I like to hug, right? I'm like, Oh, Hey, and I hug you like, Mm -hmm. hello and goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't do that. (laughs) could not do that. That was actually one of the first situations I was in that got really violent was whenever I did, he did see me do that in front of him. And he said it was disrespectful, um, all kinds of things, even though I was hugging somebody in front of their wife and also even hugged the wife. (laughs) So well, obviously very friendship oriented. Yeah. And so is there this part of you too? I mean, I hear two things in this. I hear a part of you where he's actually turning it around on you. Like you're doing this, you're doing this. There's no, you know, what we know is nonviolent communication. Like, oh, I'm noticing that when you wear your hair down for other people, I feel uncomfortable. Can we have a conversation about this? Like that's, you know, as weird as that conversation would be with someone. I mean, that's the way it would go. So a lot of like, blame on you. No self accountability mm-hmm. is what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, this is you, you doing this. And so therefore I, I need to punish you almost like, and show you the way. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a part of you that just was like, um, yeah, like when you hugged another guy, obviously friends that, you know, and that's when the physical abuse started, the part of you that says, you know, that wants to stand, like stand up and be like, no, that's not the truth. And like almost, I guess, defend yourself in a way. Yeah, you would think so. (laughs) But when you're, when you're in these situations, they, they start to gaslight you. Mm, Say more about that. What do you mean? Okay. 
So in the situation, um, the very first, let's say the very first time that that, I mean, that was a very much like I should have gone to the doctor mm-hmm. type thing. Yeah. I should have gone to the doctor and everyone is always like, why didn't you, <laughs> why didn't you go to the doctor? Why didn't you, you know, leave then? Um, and what happened in that moment was it was a hundred percent all of my fault. Like if he was 100% blaming me. Like, I wouldn't have done this if you wouldn't have disrespected me, you know, all of that. Um, And then I was raised to be very respectful. Like, I'm I'm half Japanese, so I was raised to be very loyal, to be very respectful to those that I love. And so for me, and you've heard me say this probably a few times since, since we've been friends, is I never, ever, ever have that intention of ever making anybody feel anything less like I never intentionally want to hurt anybody. So for me, he knew that mm-hmm. and he would say that I had intentionally hurt him. I was intentionally doing these things to that. And so it turns into that's actually when that establishment, I feel like of the pattern of um, probably fawning mm-hmm. actually comes into play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And oh, no, no, I would never do that to you. And then all of a sudden, I'm the one actually fawning him yeah. and saying, wait, no, stay, stay. I don't leave. I didn't mean to do that to you. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. That's not what it looks like. That's not how it is. Let me prove it to you. You know, that type of thing starts me, to happen. Let me change myself for you. Yeah. So that you stay in this relationship so that I don't lose you. Yeah. Because now there's problems with me. Mm. I'm the reason why this happened. Mm. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. So I'll change because that wasn't ever my intention. Mm. Is there a part of you, you said, you know, part of you being half Japanese and having a respect for the people that you love. Is there another part of your childhood that you think led to this fawning or people pleasing? Oh yeah. It was a hundred percent modeled in my childhood. (laughs) Say more about that. (laughs) So, um, I do want to say that I do love I do love my childhood. I love my childhood. I love how I was raised. My mom did an extremely good job of making it look like how I was raised was very normal. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm an adult, you know, probably like most of us, we realize how dysfunctional our childhood really was. 100%. We don't yeah. know any other, diff- we don't know any other way. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, a little bit about my childhood. My, my father died. He was He was the Japanese side. My father passed away when I was very young. I was like a year and a half. My mom is not close to her family at all. So when she, but she was very close to my my father's family. Mm -hmm. So the Japanese side, right? That's where I was at. And then she remarried when I was five years old to a man that struggled with some mental health problems. Mm-hmm. But we didn't know that as children. So my my siblings are actually, uh, I'm the only one that's full with my father. And then when my mom remarried, we actually had, um, she had four more children wow. with my stepfather, who I call dad. He raised me. I call him dad. I love him dearly. He has since passed. But because he had mental health issues, he was very much in and out of our lives. Like he was never 
he was never solid there mm. ever. He would come in and then he'd leave and it would never be a big blow up. It would never be anything like that. We would, we'd go to school one day, like he'd be home at breakfast and we'd come home from school and he would be gone with no explanations. Nobody knows where he is and he'd be gone for six months or something like that. And your mom wouldn't share any information or talk about it. No, she would just say that he was visiting family or, you know, something like that. I never saw her, um, I never saw her in victim mode. I never saw her ever. She never showed us that vulnerable side or that upset side or that hurt side. She never showed us that it was just, it was just life. This is normal. Mm. This is normal. She would never even say this is normal. She would just act like everything was normal and nothing happened. So we would just go on with our lives. Wow. Life goes on. Yeah. Do you know now where he was going during those times? I do actually. um, So he was gay. He was um, gay and he, he wasn't, he was part of the LDS church at that time, church of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. And they don't, you get excommunicated. They didn't accept that back then. I'm not sure how it is now. Yeah, I don't know, <laughs> but he would get excommunicated if he was truthful in that. He loved his faith. He loved his religion. He wasn't necessarily a man that practiced it all the time, but he did believe in it. That was his belief. And so he would be, um, yes, he would be visiting family at times, but there were other times that he was, like he was part of a nudist camp <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and he was very free spirited and what he, in order to live his authentic true self, he had to go away. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, he was married to a woman when he was gay, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, yes. <laughs> and he had a family and he had, you know, I mean, that was the thing is that when he'd come back, that's where we, I'd see the fawning, right? Like the fawning and the acceptance and all of, you know, all of that when he would come back. From your mom or from the kids or both, everyone, everyone, everyone. everyone. Yeah. It was as if nothing, it was as if he hadn't been gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, just as, as easily as he left, he would just as easily mesh right back into our lives. Okay. So it's like the norm was he can come and go. He can do whatever he wants. We'll just placate to this, even if it's hurting us inside emotionally. I'm sure it hurt your mom on some level. Oh Yeah. Yeah. And we just let the man, I mean, it's kind of, I'm hearing the relevant, the similarities of, we just kind of let the man do whatever he wants. And we just, as the woman, the wife kind of work around it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of what you then did in your marriage. Mm -hmm. You can do whatever you can treat me however you want. You can say whatever you want. You can, it sounds like escalated then to physically abuse me. And I'll just keep okay with like, that's just normal. I'm just, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay. It was almost like not making waves. I was modeled to really not make waves. Cause like I said, I never really saw her upset. She was always very strong and very, um, you know, she, I'm, I know she wasn't now at this, you know, as an adult, we talked about it and I know that she was hurt and she was a very independent woman. Mm-hmm. very independent in that way. And she always taught me, this is another thing that kind of goes into play with, with the marriage part, right? Like as you 
I like that you're asking me these questions of like, why did you stay or didn't you do, you didn't want to defend? Um, she always taught me to be very financially independent because of what happened with my father. Mm -hmm. So she was always very much, I think that's why I was also very career driven mm -hmm. because she's always taught me, you never know, you never know when you are going to be, you know, the breadwinner of your family or, you know, anything like that. So, yeah, there's also the similarity to, of. Oh, I kind of lost it. There was a big similarity to in the, in the patterns of the marriages of like, I'll come back to that. And there's, I'm seeing all these like, oh, okay, this is what my mom did. This is how I was raised. I'm going to carry this over into my marriage. It was that piece that your mom was always strong. And that's one of the first things you said is from the outside, no one would have known you were abused. Yeah. The outside world. I mean, and it's how I experience you, Lori, personally today is this very like confident, strong woman. It's like shit will happen to you. And you're like, Bleh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I'm good. <laughs> it's true too, because you know, I do, I sit there and I say, I've survived a lot. <laughs> totally. I've totally. survived a lot. Even as a baby, if we want to go that far back to, you know, my father unexpectedly passing, Yeah. you know, so yeah. if we talk these imprints, cause you and I are both these practitioners, you know, mm -hmm. if we talk these imprints all the time, this is why we geek out together all the time. Yeah. I was taught back then yeah. to be independent, to be strong. Yeah. Don't let the mm -hmm. world get to you. Don't let the world see what's happening on the inside. Yeah. To combine own. that, <laughs> combine that with Japanese culture. And it's like, you don't let anybody see you break and mm. you are seen and you're not heard. Mm. Mm, that piece. Don't let anyone see you break. Yeah. Phew. So you're in an abusive marriage and you don't let anyone see what's happening on the inside. Yeah. Wow. So you had said it progressively. So it started with isolation and then there started to be physical abuse. I imagine the physical abuse continued to escalate, continued to get worse. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you were with him for 11 years. So, and you're also, you had two children with him. Is he abusing your children at this point? Um, so my children are adults now, but yes. Mentally, emotionally, they might, they are, they don't allow the physical to happen anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, but yes, all the other ways, my daughter was physically abused and I'm sure my, my son was as well. Mm -hmm. I think there just is a lot, you know, they, so they were not being physically abused. See, that's another thing is that people think domestic violence and domestic abuse is physical, right? kind of what I wanted to share with you too, is that I didn't identify even, okay. Even though I had bruises all over my body, because that was another thing, you know, I would still go to work. I would still, I still did life because nothing was being shown where people could see. <laughs> yeah. The physical abuse like, was all, like parts of the body where no one could see. Yeah. yeah. Parts of the body where no one could see. Um, can I interrupt just a little bit? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. here's a sign 
<laughs> this is a telltale sign of physical abuse or something that's progressing into physical abuse is when you can see if you're in somebody's home and you can see random pictures and random places on the wall. And if you were to lift those photos or that picture, usually there's holes in the wall. Oh, that breaks yeah. my heart. Yeah. So just that's one of the signs of being able to see that, you know, because that's what my house looked like. <laughs> there <were laughs> because there are the pictures everywhere. There'd be random pictures everywhere because um, I might have been up against a wall. And instead of punching me, he had punched the wall. Mm. Yeah. But right next to me, mm -hmm. you know, that type of thing. Lots, happen. Yeah, lots of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so I never identified with being in an, in an abusive relationship because you know, you see those billboards or the commercials and it's usually a woman with black eyes and like a split lip or something like that. She looks very depressed and very like homeless almost, right? Like just ragged and you know, all of that. And I was always like, I'm not that person. I don't mm -hmm. identify with that person. That's not like, I am a successful woman and still a confident woman. Like even though this was happening, I was still a confident woman and Cause that was another thing is that he would abuse me, but then build me up. Right. <laughs> There's this cycle of, <laughs> which they say is the cycle of abuse. Right. And, mm -hmm. and why women, not always women, but why the abusee stays so long Yeah, because they build them up. Yeah. They're never going to do it again. It's called the honeymoon cycle. Like when they, when they start to go in their honeymoon phase. Um, but yeah, I never once, I never once thought I was an abused in an abusive relationship. I knew I wasn't in a, a healthy one. Like I did know that, but I also thought it was more that he didn't have control over his anger. Mm. And by then it was always my fault. So mm. I was always looking at myself on how can I be better? How can I be better? How can I not trigger that? Because he was also abused as a child. Mm. And so I, I already knew that cycle of abuse. And so a lot of times it was like, okay, so how do I be better? How do I not trigger this? How mm. do I not mm. send him over the edge? And that some of that people pleasing and fawning is like, mm -hmm. how do I fix this? Mm -hmm. Cause I'm the pro how do I fix this? I'm the problem. Mm -hmm. um, how many years in you had your first child before you were married? And then how many years later did you have your second child? He was planned as well, and he was, I think, three or four years later. Okay. Four years later. Four mm -hmm. years later. And then how old were your kids when you ended up leaving your ex? Um, my daughter was eight, and my son was four. Okay. All right. Yeah. And, yeah, so at what point were you like, holy shit, I'm in an abusive marriage? <laughs> When did it dawn on you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I laugh. This is so not a laughing matter, but I also, I'm very lighthearted about it because <laughs> it, it is true. Like, yes, this is, I like to bring the lightheartedness into these deeper subjects and these more painful subjects. So, um, you know, he would work out of town a lot. He would work out of town a lot. He'd work out of the country a lot. 
And um, at this particular time, it was probably a, I would say a year, maybe a little less than a year before I actually left. Um, he was out of the country. And I was at that point had already been and financially being financially abused for a long time. I definitely was the breadwinner of my family. Um, well, actually I won't say that. He was probably making as much money as I was at that time, but I was working for like a corporation, like so I was in the corporate world and he was more working for private companies and in construction. So he was actually off building a resort in the Cayman Islands and I was at home. And he, um, we had gotten into this cycle and this pattern of where I would use my paychecks, like my paychecks would go into the bank and that's what we would live off of. And then he always had cash. That's actually how he would just have cash and he would either have it in like safety deposit boxes or places in the home or, I mean, he would just have cash in very different places. And I would never really know where it was, but I really didn't care where it was either. Mm-hmm. So I was always thinking, okay, this is this is the conditioning from my mother saying, be financially independent. So I always made sure that I could make enough money. Um, what was happening during this time that he was away, I would actually feel a little more safe, right? Like he's, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like an ocean away from me. <laughs> he's a country away from me because I was still in Utah. <laughs> he was an ocean away from me in the Cayman Islands. And oh. so... If I wanted to go to the movies with my sister and my mom, I would. If I wanted to hang out with some friends, because at that time I wasn't allowed to have some friends, but I would say my friends mean coworkers, then I would. I would go and and it was always with a price. Every single time I would get in trouble, I would be punished. And the way that he was punishing me at that time was financially. So he would tell me, I'm not gonna send any money home. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to send any money home. I'm not. Yeah. I'm like, how did he know if you went out with your sister or your coworkers, you would tell him? Oh gosh. <laughs> so I didn't know. I never knew how he knew, but mm-hmm. he'd always say he had his ways. And I found out later that he had people following me. Yeah. He had people following me and telling him what I was doing. Um, at this point in the marriage, he knew exactly how long it took me to get home from work, how long it took me to get to work. Um, the grocery store, it, it like running errands, all of that. Like he just, he knew. I, I literally had to tell him every detail of my day as like well. He's stalking you. Even yeah. though he's an ocean away. My mind right now, I'm just like... <laughs> He was literally keeping tabs on you when he's an ocean away. Yeah. And then he would accuse me of cheating on him. I mean, some pretty extreme accusations were happening. When the reality of it was I was going to work, I was coming home, and I was taking care of two children because their father was was not there. So he started to say, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to send money over. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Let's see how you do that. Let's see if you can go to the movies then. Let's mm-hmm. see if you can, you know, and that was probably the biggest mistake he could have ever made was that moment right then. Because even though I had been financially supporting our family for years, I just, I didn't realize it. I didn't make it the connection. And it was that month that he said, I'm not sending home any money. He never did anyway. <laughs> he 
he, he never did anyway. He would bring cash home, but then I never saw it again, you know. Yeah. So he never did anyway, and I was able to make all the bills, of course, and we were able to live just fine. That's when I realized, oh, my gosh, I can financially leave if I ever wanted to. Mm-hmm. I'd financially be able to take care of my family. Wow. And I, that's what I actually hear from a lot of clients right now, especially right now with the way the housing market is and everything that's happening is that there's a desire to end the relationship, but you can't find anywhere to live. You can't, there's no very little affordable housing happening even if you're in a really good job or like have the income coming in, it's really hard right now to, I mean, you have to have three months rent to get into an apartment and, or you have to have proof that you make so much money or, I mean, houses in my neighborhood are selling for a million to over a million dollars. And it's like, I couldn't go buy a house right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it just really leaves a lot of people in relationships or in situations that aren't healthy for them because they have nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. It's just wild to yeah. me. Yeah, that that's a big one. That is a really big one. And to be, be honest with you, that was, I never even thought, well, he also held that over my head, mm-hmm. you know, because we did have the home together. Mm-hmm. And so I... I didn't ever want to leave that, that house or like, you know, the house and the yard, like I took care of the yard and all the things. And like, I didn't want to ever leave that. That was never an option. Yeah. But at this point in time, I wasn't even to that point yet. I wasn't even, I, I mean, it always, there always takes a shocking moment, mm. right? A shocking moment. And even then I was same thing. Like I was still paycheck to paycheck at that point because mm. I was, you know, it was a whole family that I was, a whole household that I was supporting. So even in that moment, the same thing of what you said, I have in my mind, I was like, I don't have, because I had no access to any of his money. We did have um, a safety deposit box, like I said, that we had to some cash in at that time. Um, but honestly, I never thought of his money as mine, even though my money was ours. Mm. Like I never thought I had access to that. Interesting. Yeah. So you started to realize like, oh, I feel better when he's gone and (laughs) I'm supporting the family. Yeah. And that was, was that your shock? That wasn't your shocking moment. That was just kind of a small, Mm. uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Like something's going on here. Something's going on here. I'm starting to make some connections. I'm starting to realize I'm not stuck here which that is so freeing when you start to realize, oh, I'm not stuck. And -hmm. that's how I think anything in life is, right? Mm -hmm. Anything in life, when you start to realize that you have choices, like even when you're talking about the different people who are saying financially they can't leave, when you start to understand, we'll go more into this, um, that you do have these choices, it's just up to you to make them, and then things start to open up and you start to feel like you can breathe. Mm. And you're not stuck in this box. I love that because that's what one of, I mean, so trauma happens in so many different ways, but one of the ways of why people experience trauma or why it's imprinted on their nervous system is the act of choice is taken away. Yeah. 
And so that's the opposite that you're bringing into our awareness is that when someone actually does have choice, it can propel them forward into a new situation or a new way of, of being Mm -hmm. maybe out of a trauma state, which is sometimes how we do some deeper trauma work is, is helping the person recognize they do have choice or if they actually didn't have choice, how do we rewire that in their system or resource them with what they need Mm -hmm. to see this in a different way of light and holding that in their bodies. So Mm -hmm. I love that you bring that in. Yeah. Cause that was a, that was a huge pivotal point. Um, you know, and I was talking to like my mom, you know, I was talking to my sister, I was talking to different people about what was happening and yeah, same thing. Like, oh, you shouldn't be treated. That's not, you know, but not a single person said this isn't normal. Mm. Not a single person. Were you telling them the full extent of everything that was happening or were you kind of like still hiding bits and pieces? I was still hiding bits and pieces, (laughs) you know, because also, I don't know, you just don't share everything about things. I mean, I feel like that's also human nature, especially if you feel shame or anything around that. Right. Um, so he started to recognize at this point that I was becoming more bold Mm. and I was starting to say, you know, I'm quit, quit threatening me with, with financial things. I'm already doing this. Like I would say that to him, I'm already doing this. So it's fine. You want to be a jerk. You want to be a dick, whatever you want to be like, be that over there. And that's fine. You can't hold that over my head anymore. So he decided to, um, quit his job over there and come home because he started to realize, Oh, we need to work on our relationship. Okay. We need to work on our relationship. (laughs) Quote unquote. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So, um, he comes home and I was really excited because we were, um, we were getting to that 11 year mark in our, in our anniversary. So he comes home in May, our anniversary is in like June in this time period between May and June, he, um, tells me he's going to anger management. He tell well, let me back up a little bit. So he comes home in May, <laughs> Memorial day weekend, um, this is when another big blow up happens. This was one of my aha moments. So the financial thing was a big aha moment. The Memorial Day weekend, he comes home. We're at a friend's barbecue. I also am at the point where I'm I'm wearing clothes that I normally wouldn't wear, like very extreme. I'm, I'm always a pretty modest person even now. But um, back then, like I would be in dressing rooms and I would bend over in the dressing room to see if you could see down my shirt when I bent over and and if you could, I'd always have my hand here when I bent over so people couldn't see down my shirt. Um, just anything like that would, would trigger him into something saying that I was doing something that I was trying to catch somebody's attention. So, um, on this particular day, I was wearing a crew t-shirt that was all the way up to here. I had, I couldn't have anything on like my breast, like any, like, anything like that. It's just not like any kind of graphic shirt, but this particular shirt, um, because he was starting to go to anger management and things, I thought, all right, I'm going to wear the shirt. <laughs> it was a crew shirt that went all the way up to my neck, just t-shirt on the shirt. There was a heart. 
So it was a heart like right here, you know how graphics are. And yeah. inside the heart had all of these words. It probably had a hundred different words in it. Yeah. And um, I never, I'll, I'll be honest, I never read what was inside the heart because there was a hundred different words inside with all different fonts and everything. Well, apparently one of the words in there was lust. Oh, and he, he picked <laughs> yeah. that one out. He picked that one out and he said at the barbecue, this is when we got home at the barbecue, he said, I kept bending over and showing somebody like he had somebody picked out there that I barely knew and said that I was bending over to get things out of the cooler by this person. I was trying to give him a message that was written in my shirt. Yeah. And I was doing all this for, for this other person. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, um, because I did stand up for myself because I had been away from him for so long. And I was just like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, this is like, no, I have been completely faithful to you for 11 years almost. Mm -hmm. Like I, I have been a hundred percent loyal to you. I love you. I'm devoted to you, you know, all of these things. And I stood up for myself and that turned into one of the worst physically violent situations that had ever happened in our marriage. I'm so sorry, Laurie. Yeah, but it was good because it was, a, I'm not gonna say it was good, but it was a very pivotal moment for me because I literally had my clothes ripped off of me. He literally ripped all of my clothes off, um, drugged me down the hall, like by my hair. I mean, all guy had chunks of hair everywhere. Um, just all kinds of physically violent things were happening, right? Things yeah. were getting broken, holes in the walls, all kinds of stuff. And all of this was happening in front of my children. Mm. Who were little. Who were little. They were eight and four. Yeah. But here's the thing. Like me as a mom. So in that moment, I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm leaving, you know, type thing. So I grabbed the kids, I put them in the car, we leave. And I'm like, I'm watching my kids like reflecting on them and they didn't blink an eye. They continued to watch their TV show. They continued to play. They, and like I said, all of this happened right in front of them, like literally in the same room. Yeah. And they were not phased at all. And then as we were driving away from the house and I was crying and upset, my four-year-old son is asking me why I'm crying. Wow. And that's yeah. when it hit you. That's what hit me. It wasn't the things that were happening with me. It was the fact that my children were not, it was so normal for them mm -hmm. to have major chaos, like major. It wasn't quiet. It wasn't quiet. There was all kinds of damage made. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was like, they, they didn't even, they were not even faced. And then actually asking me why, why did we just leave? Why are you crying? Why are you so upset? And I said, did you see what, what just happened? Did you see what dad did to me? You know? And he said, yeah, I did, but I want to go back and watch my show. Mm -hmm. And I was, yeah. So the abuse was totally normalized by that point. Mm -hmm. I didn't even phase him. Like that was, that was normal. Yeah. Wow. So that was your, 
I call it tipping point with my clients. It's like we get to this point where something cracks, something breaks, where we can no longer be in the same position. And if we look at it from an energetic perspective, it's like the energy builds and builds and builds and builds. And eventually the system has to crack open or tip over into this other point where we're like, no more, no more. I've had my fill. My cup is full. (laughs) I am done, whatever it is. And I like that you call it your, your shocking. That was your shocking moment. Same idea. It's like, yeah, it's so energetically violent that it wakes us up and we're like, no, no more, no more. It's uh, yeah. Well, you would think I said no more, but I didn't. <laughs> so, so you're like, I did it. There's more. <laughs> did you continue to stay in the relationship? Well, I did because all of a sudden it was that cycle, right? It was that mm. cycle. Hey, I'm going to anger management and I'm never going to do this again. And then it came out that he had gotten addicted to, um, some pain. He had hurt his ankle. This was the story I heard. He had hurt his ankle. He was addicted to pain pills. It was all these things, you know, which I didn't know. I didn't know. There's a drug history there also that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, because he was out of town a lot, you know, he was gone a lot of the time. So, um, you know, it was all these, he did take some accountability at that time, but also still blaming other things, right? Yeah. Like blaming other things. Well, I, you know, I have this pill problem right now and that's the irritability, you know, so it was all these things. Cause I actually was gone for a couple of days that time. I actually went to go see my mom and then I came back. So fast forward a month, I thought he was in in anger, you know, anger management. I found out later he was not, he was actually stalking me whenever he wasn't in anger management yeah. and just making, trying to see what I, what we were doing. He kept, he was convinced I was cheating on him. So he thought that while he was at other appointments, if he's, if I, he said that I would see my lover or whoever it was, but he thought he never ever had a person because it wasn't happening. So he never had a person in mind, but um, so I also found out that while he was doing all of this, he was actually making his own plans. So I didn't leave on my own terms. And that, this was the real shocking <laughs> point. Okay. And this was when, um, it kind of progressed more into the story of, cause still at this point, I didn't think I was in an abusive relationship. I just figured things got out of control at times even though your kids were normalized to it, that yeah, you just thought, okay, this is just happening sometimes. Yeah. This is just happening. Sometimes it's just the cycle of abuse, you know, me, but I, I didn't realize that the cycle was actually happening. <laughs> that's the part that's like always so mind blowing. I thought it was still coming. Mm-hmm. It was more like, I thought, yeah, I thought it was still coming. So, um, fast forward a month is our anniversary our anniversary. And, um, he says, Hey, I I've gotten, you know, I want to do something special. I've gotten a a babysitter. He's never gotten a babysitter. I've always had to do anything and everything. I've had to buy my own gifts and wrap them and put them under the Christmas tree and all that kind of stuff just to show the kids that yeah, mom gets presents too. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I thought, Oh my gosh, he's really trying. 
Like he's really trying. He, I get, I, I'm loving this. So I let him, you know, he goes and he takes the kids and, and I don't know where they are. I just think they're at a babysitter. I don't ask questions at this point. I'm just very grateful that this is happening. Well, he ends up coming back and he's in a full on rage. He's in just a full on rage and he starts to say, so you think that you, you know, it's, it's talks like you think you can outsmart me. You think that you can leave me. You think that you can, you know, X, Y, Z, all the things, um, all the stories that he's created in his mind. And he's ripping out the phones out of the wall. Like he's, um, at that time it was just prepaid phones, like mm -hmm. cell phones. Mm -hmm. So he takes my phone. He, I think he broke it. I can't remember. He's taking, um, all the dresser drawers and just the kids' clothes, just dumping them into trash bags and all of their toys and all of their everything, like their coats, they're just all their possessions. He's putting them into trash bags and he is just trashing the entire house as he goes. And he tells me that he's never going to, I'm never going to see my children again. Oh my yeah. goodness. That's so intense. Yeah. Thank so goodness intense. there were, um, I still have my car. So yeah. it was good. I had my car, um, and I had a quarter. He had taken all the money too. You had um, a quarter. I had a quarter. Okay. And I think it was in my car. Like, you know how you had changed your car mm -hmm. and thank goodness for pay phones because I was actually able to go and use a pay phone and I called work. This is what's sad. <laughs> I called work to say, I'm not going to be in tomorrow. Oh yeah. my gosh. The like, you miss responsible, spend your <laughs> last quarter. Yeah. <laughs> and I called work and I said, Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm not going to be in tomorrow. And my coworker answered the phone and she was like, Oh my gosh, you're okay. And I said, I was like, yeah, I will not okay, but I'm okay. Type thing. I go, why? And she said, he just called and implied that he had killed you. And that we needed to go find you. He called Wait. my work. He called my employer and actually said that I wouldn't be in to work and said that if they wanted to go find me, that they could look on this road and they could look on this road and they could look on that road. Oh my gosh. What did your, what did they do? Like what, how do you even receive a call like that? You know, it's like, I guess you call the police at that point. No, nobody called because, because you have Leisha, because I was calm. Oh my God. I was calm. And I said, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. This is what has just happened. Cause it was a coworker that I was pretty close to. Mm -hmm. So I said, this is what kind of just had, I didn't tell her all the things. I just said, this is kind of what just happened. She knew we were having some issues. Um, so yeah, she didn't, they didn't do anything. <laughs> Yeah. And I didn't do anything. <laughs> I guess I'm just thinking like, if I would have gotten that call, I'd be like, okay, it's time to call the police. But there's that like missing persons window, you know? So it's like, there's nothing they could have done. And then you called by then. And, and then where do you go? So you're at a pay phone. Yeah. So I end up at my sister's house mm -hmm. because there was a lot of threats made, you know, to me as well. So I go to my sister's house, but I literally go into hiding. Like I'm hiding my car in different places. She's saying, she's telling him she doesn't know where I am. You know, um, 
things like that. I still continue to go to work because where I was working at that time, if you didn't show up, you got fired. So I was still going to work. Wait, um, where are your kids? I don't know. Have they ever they, told they, you? They're kidnapped. No. Yes. I found out that they were okay. actually at my grandparents. They were actually at my friend's house. Okay. My friend didn't know this was happening. Okay. All she knew was, hey, I'm watching the kids while you guys go and have date night and celebrate anniversary and all of that. So, um, and then I found out a few days later, they were at um, my in-laws home. Okay. So they were always in safe places. Yeah. But I never knew where they were because also people were lying to me. People weren't telling me what was happening okay. until I finally broke down to my in-laws because I was super close to my in-laws. They were like my parents. I was closer to my mother-in-law than I was to my own mother at this time. Mm -hmm. And I was really close to my mom as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it was when I finally broke down and I was like, I don't know where they are. Please just tell me they're safe. Mm -hmm. Just tell me they're safe and, and I'll be okay. And that's when she finally told me that, that she had had them for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I'm coming to get them. She's like, please don't, please don't. You're going to make things worse. Yeah. You know, all that. So he, he was not actually there. He was, he was, um, it was in another town. So he had actually left them there and then came back to this other town. Well, what this did, he ends up totally cleaning out our bank accounts, canceling all the credit cards. Um, we had probably $30,000 in cash in the safety deposit box, cleaned all that out. Um, he had just taken everything, changed the locks on the house. I mean, everything. He just, he just kind of changed everything, cut, like literally cut me off. So I was like, I don't have anything right now. I barely have, like, I have an overnight bag of clothes and that's it. And I'm still, like I said, going to work. I'm still like this. I mean, I break down in front of my sister here and there, but nothing, I'm not, you know how you, most people are very, like they're upset, right? They'd yeah. be upset. They'd be all over the place, just um, hysterical. Mm -hmm. That wasn't me. I was still like, yes, I'd break down here and there, but I wasn't. People thought because I was okay, that everything was probably okay. Yeah. Do you, was there, I mean, so we talk about like disassociation. Do you think it was more that you were just like disassociated from the situation itself? Or was it more that you were just like, this is life, move forward? I think that's where my childhood comes into play, right? Mm. Where things are there mm. and then all of a sudden they're not, and then they're back again. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So I think I was disassociating with that a little bit and just going, okay, I'm just going to let them blow off some steam, mm -hmm. let them blow off some steam and I'm just going to wait and kind of see what happens. Yes. I was actively looking for them. I was, I was up all night. I was looking at places. People were lying to me mm -hmm. because he was telling them a completely different story. So it was the moment that I actually had heard about an abandonment law. I don't know if that's in place still in Utah, but at that time it was, and if you could show that the other parent did not contact their children within 14 days, that the judge would audit or DCFS, whatever organization, I don't know which one would just automatically give custody to the other parent. 
Whoa. And so I found out that that's what he was probably doing. That's what he was trying to do so that he could have full custody. Yeah. Okay. So day 12, I go into the actual organization. <laughs> I go into the actual organization, DCFS, and I, I'm still, I'm like this. I come after work even. So I'm dressed really nice and I go inside and I just said, hey, I just want you to know that I am trying to find my children. And I know that this is what happened. You, you know, you're the organization that does this. So I'm report, I'm making a report right now that I'm trying to find them. I can't find them. They don't know where they're going, you know, where they are, all of that. And they're looking at me like, are you lying <laughs> right now? <laughs> like that was actually, this is why everyone would think I was lying or making things up or exaggerating what was happening because of, I was always so calm. Yeah. And I was always just like, hey, this is what's happening. So I just want to let you know what's going on. And they immediately pushed me into this room, <laughs> into this office. And I'm with this counselor and the counselor is asking me and she's, you know, trying to figure things out. And then when she finally realizes, oh yeah, no, this is real. Mm -hmm. Then she starts saying, have you reported it to the police? Mm -hmm. She's the only person out of everyone that I've been around or trying to contact, like any of my friends, my family, like anything, my in-laws, she's the only person that said, have you called the police? Wow. And I said, no, why would I do that? <laughs> What's there to even call on? Yeah. <laughs> and she said, are you, you're, you're telling us right now that you don't know where your children are, that your house is destroyed, that you're in hiding, you're, you know, all these things. And I said, well, but they're his children. I go, they're his, I, there's, it's his house. It's his yeah. house. I'm his wife. It's his children. What has he done wrong? What crime has he done? Wow. What did she do when you said that? Okay. So she breaks out a whiteboard. <laughs> I love this woman. <laughs> she breaks out a whiteboard and she puts a black line down the middle. And then at the top of one side, she says healthy relationship and then abusive relationship. And then she says, I'm going to name off different um, characteristics and aspects of a, of a relationship. And you tell me if you are experiencing these things. And if you say yes, I'm going to put them in one of the categories. Yeah. You know, because she kept asking me, are you in an abusive relationship? Because you can get help if you are in an abusive relationship. There's protective orders. There's this or that. Although I will tell you, I did have a protective order and I had to actually um, release it because it was, we had to go into hiding again. Because mm. a piece of paper does not protect you. Yeah. The, the thing with the police is law enforcement, something has to happen in order for you to get protection. So you do have to experience more trauma mm. in order to have protection. But um, yeah, so anyway, she like, you know, and of course I had healthy aspects. Mm -hmm. I did. I had some healthy aspects there. That's why I was still there. And then the other side was completely filled. And so literally I saw it in black and white. And that was, that was the moment that I was like, oh my gosh, not only am I in an abusive relationship, but I'm in an extremely violent one. Wow. Yeah. Wild. And then that's when I broke down. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> that's when I finally went, 
it was almost like this whole pressure. You know how that happens when people finally identify like mm-hmm. that, like the one thing that makes sense that someone has been experiencing. Yeah. And then it's almost like this whole, like the floodgates open. Yeah. You're finally seen for like what's happening and what's going on and how you're feeling and, and someone understands someone's validating your experience to be a true experience. Mm-hmm. Got a little yeah. puppy yawning over here. <laughs> <laughs> She's moving energy for us. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then it was that whole, like seeing everything from a different lens, everything that I always, you know, was so fearful of, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm experiencing this right now. Yeah. Like it's happening right now. Yeah. Wow. So you ended up getting help finally. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, hopefully DCSF was like, let's help you and call the police and do these things. Um, actually the only thing they helped me with was that protective order, which actually escalated the situation. So, um, like I said, I was an extreme case. And so there was a time when I did have, we had to go into hiding again. We had, I couldn't even tell my mom like where I was. This was probably three or four days. I couldn't tell anybody where I was. And at that time he said he had spyware on my cell phone and trackers on my car and all kinds of things. And it just, it was just never ending with him. Yeah. And so I literally got to a point, it's funny because I never, I guess I was pursuing getting a divorce at that point, but the reality of it was, and this actually happens in most situations again, um, they actually will divorce you first. So that's what happened. Oh, he ended up divorcing you. Yeah. He got the papers drawn up first because he wanted it to be on his terms, like his terms. He wanted that control. Mm -hmm. still. Mm -hmm. So, um, at that time, lots of threats were being made. And so I literally just signed what was there. I didn't have an attorney. He went and actually got my attorney. Mm -hmm. He found out what I want, who I wanted to go to, and then went and got my attorney. And so you couldn't, I just, yeah, I was just like, I'm done playing these games. And so I just, so he got everything. He got everything. I never got um, child support, anything like that. I did get my car and I got a couch and um, I did get a little bit of money from the house, but nothing what it should have been. So was it half and half custody or did you have full time? It was half and half custody, even though he was still, I mean, there have been so many different cases since then that he's had to go and that's the hard part is that even extreme cases, you still don't get that support and that help. Yeah. I actually, I had a, a client years back that they got divorced. He was physically abusing both her and her son. She couldn't prove it in the courts, used everything against her that she was kind of like the crazy one mm-hmm. and they got half and half custody. And I'm not a parent, but there's honestly like, there's nothing I can imagine as worse than that. Like knowing that your child 
is spending time with an abusive person for half of their life. Like mm-hmm. that just makes me angry at our systems. <laughs> it is hard. <laughs> it is very, very hard because there was even one time where we had like a little mini trial. I don't even know what exactly what it was called, but it was at DCFS. My daughter had actually, um, she opened a case against him when she was 12. Wow. And he still, I mean, I had recordings of him threatening her life and, you know, all kinds of things. And they still let him have his parental rights. And so, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing you can do at that point because now I'm breaking the law, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it is, it's very heartbreaking because there's so much damage and so much trauma that has happened. It's still happening. My son's 21. My daughter's 26. It's still happening. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I want to, I want, I'm going to pin that. Cause I do want to ask about that. I also want to go back a little bit where you went to DSFS. You realize you're in an abusive relationship, but at this point you still don't know where your kids are. So how many days went by until you actually found your kids and was able to be reunited with them again? So I was, I disassociated at that point. I think it was because I was trying to process. I finally was processing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I, it made me feel good to know that I, I had reported something to a safe space that he wouldn't have known about. Mm-hmm. So he didn't know. I, I don't know if he's ever known that I actually went there and spoke to them. Um, Cause it didn't matter. I will tell you, it didn't matter where I went, what I was doing. The bank called him and told him that I was trying to um, open new accounts. He actually cleaned out my, my own personal account. People got fired over that one, but yeah, he cleaned out my own. I had gotten my own personal account so that I could get my own place and everything. And he had cleaned that out too. Um, but he, it didn't matter where I was. He had asked people to, Hey, if my wife, you know, this is, so my name was flagged in a lot of systems. Wow. So I had to totally yeah, it's been such a mess. So at that time, I don't really recall how many days it was. I know I ended up back home. I did end up back home. And that's how I was able to see them again, was if I came back home. Back home with him. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, eventually he filed for divorce. You have to completely reestablish yourself half-time custody with your children. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure a lot of the laws have changed. I'm hoping a lot of the laws has changed. This was before like privacy laws and all these things. So I'm hoping that for women now that are in these abusive situations, it's a little easier, <laughs> not quite so dry. I hope so, but it's also still hard because the same things still happen with threatening your children, threatening mm-hmm. you. You know, yeah. damage to vehicles. I mean, stocking, electronic stocking. <laughs> it's really, really, it's actually really hard. Yeah. Because a lot of times when you do make those reports and you do have, you take advantage of those laws, those, it escalates the situation. Yeah. Did he ever finally leave you alone? And like, <laughs> you know, he I mean? left me alone when. Um, my neighbor moved in, who's a police officer. When was that? How long ago? That was about six years ago. Okay. All right. So it has been, let's see, it's been 17 years. 
So even after divorce, 11 years after divorce, and also me being remarried mm-hmm. for several years, mm-hmm. he, he still continued to harass and be in our lives like that. How did you, how did you manage that and tolerate that? You know, I'm going to bring Jean Keys into this. Okay. <laughs> so I found out, like, I'm just very understanding of other people's behaviors. Like, I, that's one of my gifts, actually, is that I, I'm able to understand. I'm able to understand why people do the things that they do. And I'm able to understand the cycle of abuse. And I even understood it then. It's just when I was in it. I was so brainwashed. I was so conditioned. I was, you know, that I, I thought because my life was, I was still functional. I was still responsible. I was still all those things that I wasn't, I knew we were headed that way, but I didn't realize I was in it. Yeah. Yeah. I shared with you before I hit record in my first marriage, I also, and I don't talk a lot about this, but I definitely had emotional abuse going on and a lot of fawning on my part to, to, um, keep the marriage together. A lot of people pleasing. And it wasn't until I moved in with my now husband, I was having PTSD responses to some things that were happening. And it got so bad that we decided to go to therapy and like, I was having larger reactions to my partner than normal for some of his behaviors, some of his behaviors, like normal behaviors. And I would be having breakdowns and sharing, you know, go into my therapy session, sharing a certain story where it did escalate beyond emotional abuse. And, um, I was just sharing this story and, and then the therapist goes, wait a minute, pause back up. Like what happened? Like your husband did what? And I was like, oh, that's not normal. Like, you know, these, these like verbal and emotional abuse and what I experienced, like, that's not normal. And she's like, no, like, no wonder you're having PTSD responses and having a huge emotional response to normal patterns from your now partner. Like it all clicked for her in that moment. Mm -hmm. And it brought this awareness to me of like, one, I never shared it with anyone. That was actually the first time I told that full story in therapy. Mm. And because I thought it was normal, I thought like, this is just what happens in relationship. Yeah. And it was that moment where she's like, honey, this is not normal. This is not healthy. This is why mm. you're having some major issues. <laughs> let's mm. let's look at this. And you have an amazing partner that's willing to work through this with you as you navigate these pieces. And I just remember my mind being a little bit blown. Like, oh, you yeah. mean I was abused and I didn't know it? Because it yeah. doesn't look like those pictures you see of women with black eyes and that look like really disheveled and homeless. Like I had my shit together the whole time. It's like you Mm -hmm. and like, same thing. When I filed for divorce, people were like, you guys have the perfect relationship. 
why are you ending this? What's wrong with you? Mm. That's what I was told. Yes. I'm sorry that you've experienced that. I think so many more Mm. people do, which is probably the reason why I wanted you to share your story because even meeting you and hearing little bits and pieces, that was all, I was always like, why Lori, like you have your shit together. You're strong. You're confident. Like, why'd you stay so long? (laughs) And also like not recognizing everything you went through to get out. I had no idea. That was just, um, that's just tiny. Can share. We'll be here all day. <laughs> if I were to tell you all the, all the ways that, you know, because I didn't have anybody. That's another thing too. You know, I didn't have, which I, I, that's both. I feel like that's a lot of people. I didn't have anyone that had money that could help me. I didn't have, you know, I actually finally, um, asked someone in my, on my Japanese side family, cause they finally said, do you have an attorney? What's going on? And I didn't, I told them very little. And they said they would give me $2,000 to get an apartment, like to get a place to get away from that. So that I was lucky in that, in that sense that yes, I did have somebody they had, and I didn't ask for money. They were just asking me what was happening. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. I'm lucky in the sense too, that when I finally decided, when I had my tipping point, um, I went and moved back home with my mom and stepdad. Like they luckily had a guest, a little guest room that I could move into and any relationship uncoupling is hard. Mm -hmm. And then you add abuse. It's just this whole other layer to navigate. It is because I also, it's survival. Like it's definitely survival mode at that point. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I love um, having this conversation with you because they're even you and I have done deep work together. Like you have done deep work with me on so many levels, but then also like in our group when we get together, but also just on a personal level and so much more is is there. I feel like finally after the work that we've done, that last piece, that finally unconscious that all the unconscious imprints are now are now fully gone out of my system. And I feel like I'm fully healed. Wow. In that way. Yeah. Um, did you ever have like this anger phase? Cause you said with gene keys and some people might not know what gene keys is and maybe I'll do a separate little podcast on that. We won't get into that right now, but with your gene keys, you just have the ability. It's one of your gifts to see it from the other person's perspective. Did you still ever have this moment where you turned into like a mama lion or mama bear where you were like, fuck you. <laughs> And got angry. <laughs> I'm like, yes, there were pieces. <laughs> there were moments. But I will tell you, I mean, I just shared with you again that, you know, that all of this only stopped six years ago. Yeah. Really. You know, and it was like, I did, but there was always repercussions. Mm-hmm. Always more punishment. And that goes into, I mean, even more. Like, it didn't just stop when I, when I left, when we got divorced. It actually continued for years and years and years, um, he would kidnap my children from school all the time. Oh my God. And even then, like the school also didn't call the police. Like 
they would just call me at work and say, hey, I just want to let you know, Braden's not back in school, so we're guessing his dad came to get him off the playground. Mm. Like, you know, there was a lot of stuff like that happening throughout their entire school years. Um, there's just a lot. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot there. How did you, how did you survive? Like, because, and I'm going to, I'm going to frame this because of the resiliency piece. It would be really, really easy for you to have given up and to have not fought or, and I don't say fight because you didn't really go into this battle. And I mean, you dealt with this long after the divorce end, just really up until six years ago. Like, how did you get out of bed in the morning? and keep going and just make it? You know, it was a hundred percent my children, right? And so I will say that's kind of where the mama bear fight comes in. So it was my children. It was the support because a lot of times, um, it takes like on average seven times for someone to leave their abuser for good. Wow. Like seven times. So for me, anytime I, thought about going, cause for every bad experience that I had, or I don't even say bad, but like intense, extreme situation that I went through, there was always that polar opposite of him fawning me and him wanting to get me back and be in my, you know, wanting me back in his life, all of that. So there would be times because I, I did love him. Mm -hmm. I still do love him. Mm -hmm. I have forgiven him. I love him. I, you know, I want the best for him. And so it's like, I still, when I would have those moments of weakness, I guess I'll say that I would remember all the people who've been there to support me throughout it. All the people who, you know, listened to me cry or heard me vent or were there for me in times of need, because that really opened up once I wasn't in the same house as him, then I did have my own private space. You know, so that really opened up a lot more friendships. I was able to rekindle friendships. I was able to bring more people into my life. It was, um, I, even my neighbors, cause I lived in an apartment complex. So my neighbors would actually call me and tell me when he was knocking on my door and yeah. in the middle of the night and stuff like that. And just, you know, but to have that support system, like not for a second, was I going to let anybody down? I wasn't going to let myself down, like, honestly, you know, and my core, I wasn't going to let myself down, but that was like the reinforcement. Yeah. And so when you talk about, um, resiliency, I think all of us have this inner strength at our core. Every single one of us has it. And it goes back to that fight, fight, freeze. But as you start to heal, you know, most, I would say like for me, I was definitely a fighter with all of this. Mm -hmm. I would fawn or I would freeze to, I guess, keep things calm because mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to escalate situations, but I never did the flight mm -hmm. I mean, unless obviously my life is in danger because there was a lot of times that that happened. But mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm saying like my inner core is I'm a fighter. Yeah. So you would just push on through. You would just make it happen. And I would make it happen. And I'd also know that like, I'm here for bigger things. Mm. Like I never really looked at myself at what was happening to me. I've always, always known that I'm here for bigger things. Hmm. It's so interesting because in the resilience literature, one of the pieces is an understanding that there's a source 
bigger than us. There's something, there's like a God or a universe or, or a religious faith that like people that are resilient really do have that understanding of like in your, from your perspective of like, I'm here for bigger things. Isn't how I'm going down. <laughs> no, it wasn't how I'm going down. I have a mission. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And if anything, to be honest with you, like I wanted to break, I never went into victim mode, even when these things were happening. I mean, of course, everybody kind of dips down into that, but I didn't stay there for long if it did happen. And so always, always like I would understand why he was doing the things that he did. Like I understand those trigger points. I understood his childhood. His father is amazing. Like even now, like I love his father even now. Um, so like, even though he had the childhood that he had, like I even understood why his father did the things that his father did. You know, I just, I understood. And all I really wanted to do was help and fix. And that's actually like what I do now. Now I realize like this is, it's breaking that cycle. It's literally going in and healing and breaking these ancestral and generational cycles. So I now know I experienced all of this so that I can now do my life's work. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. I have chills with that one. Oh, one of the layers I think is really fascinating is we just talked really, really briefly on your kids. And I don't want you to have to get into their whole story because it is their story, but it does bring in this really interesting piece about generational trauma. And they were victims of abuse as children. And it sounds like that that carried up until their, their whole, you know, <clears throat> until they were adults and could make the choice not to be around their father. But it, from what I've heard you speak on, today is that it's actually still caring for them, that they're actually in abusive relationships now. Mm -hmm. They are. So, um, yeah, it, I thought, you know, that moment when I realized, oh my gosh, my children are not affected by this. Mm -hmm. That's when I thought, okay, I have to leave. Like I have to leave for them because no way did I want my son. I was thinking of my son. No way do I want my son to treat his partner or wife in this way ever. So if in this moment, I have to leave in order to break this cycle. But what I discovered as my children grew up and they've had their own, like their stories are phenomenal as well. Talk about resilience. <laughs> they both have phenomenal stories. Um, but I found out that I was so worried about my son, but he was the youngest. Mm -hmm. And what I should have been worried about was my daughter. Hmm. Who's the oldest. Hmm. And, you know, I won't really go into the details of her story, but it was the day that I actually, she lived in another state. She lived in Illinois. I was in Utah. And After, her, like as an adult? Yes, okay. as an adult. So the fast forward, she's 18 to 20, 18 to 20, that time frame. I can't remember exactly. Um, her boyfriend actually called me in a rage and had told me that he had just beat up my daughter and he thinks he might have killed her. And if he hadn't, he's going back to finish the job if I don't get her out. Oh my God. And you're thousands of miles away. Yeah. This is deja vu. Yes. Only even more intense. Yeah. So 
that's when, and I didn't know she lived in Illinois. Yes, we spoke, but we weren't, um, like she didn't really ever tell me the things that were happening in that relationship. And, you know, her and I talk about it quite a bit and it's, she's actually in the middle of writing a book about it. And we talk about it because it was so normal to her, right? Growing up. So she kind of model, even though I was in a really, like the, the marriage I'm in now is a very healthy marriage, but that's not her norm, even though we've been together for longer than I was in my first marriage now. So it, it still wasn't because she was so much, um, she was in, you know, her father's life. So she still saw everything because that has carried on with all the relationships that he has had. Mm. So it's also the conditioning and everything else. But anyway, she gets, um, this is an intense story, but we get her home within 24 hours. And that's how I feel like, you know, everything aligns as it should, <laughs> because we did end up getting her home within 24 hours. One of our, um, it was actually on her father's side. One of her cousins drives truck for a living. And normally he does the West coast, um, route, but this time he was going east to West and he was literally two hours away from her town. Oh, my God. And wow. I, yeah. Yeah. So we were able to like really quickly get her back to Utah within 24 hours with that. So that's why I'm saying like so many, you realize you have choices when you realize you have choices. Mm -hmm. She didn't think she had a choice in that moment, but because she had a support system around and we were able to band together, we were able to show her all the choices. Yeah. yeah. And so we got her home. Wow. But that's when I realized, you know, the extent of what she had been living with and what she had been experiencing. And she even told me then that she wouldn't have told me about that. She was actually upset that he had called me and told me about that, her boyfriend. <laughs> so, um, we, I, I never realized for a second that my daughter would be into a relationship like that. Yeah. Did that break your heart? It a hundred percent broke my heart. Yeah. And I was the one who called the police, but she didn't. Wow. Like still, and I can only do things in Utah because that's where I live. So, um, that's when I realized how much I had moved through and had healed. And because that was my first reaction after we got her home. Mm -hmm. Um, but she still, that wasn't even a thought in her mind yeah. and it's still not a thought in her mind. She's like, wow, I still, I probably still wouldn't have called the police. Yeah. Kind of like you. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Really, really similar in working through mm -hmm. that. And yeah. And you did enter quite the healing journey. Um, obviously, cause that's how you and I met was you were on your spiritual healing journey. Um, and do you feel like, do you feel like that's when I'll, you healed a lot of this stuff is after you kind of started heading down the road of like coaching and spiral modality, or was it before they, it, it was before. Okay. Yeah. It was actually before, um, I had gone, I'd gone down this, you know, whole route, the spiritual journey of just trying to figure some things out. Um, and it was when my children started to get older and out of the house that I started to really focus on myself. So I'd already started to, um, I think it was, oh yes, it was body talk therapy. I, love I started that. to, 
Yeah, I started to look into other modalities because talk therapy just wasn't for me. And because of what my children have been through, my children um, have had their own stories and their own you know, past. And so as a parent, I was really struggling with teens at that time and just kind of, you know, so I would go to talk therapy and I, I didn't like talk therapy. Mm. The reason why I don't like talk therapy is because I don't like reliving my traumas. Mm. It seemed like as soon as I was saying what was happening, then all of a sudden the time was up and then there I go, I'm out the door and I don't come back for another month or whatever. And it just re-triggered all of that. You're just no talking. Support. Yeah. yeah. And I did, I hate that. And, you know, now knowing about neuro, you know, neural pathways and how the brain is wired and all that, like now I realize like that just triggers all your body just thinks it's in that and you just have this cycle and then it just strengthens that neural pathway. When I was that, so you obviously did not have a trauma informed talk therapist. No, I didn't. I didn't. I don't even, and we never even got to the trauma. That was the, mm. you know, like we didn't even get to that ever. So anyway, I started to look at other alternative methods, you know, these other modalities and body talk therapy really was the first thing that, that really was able to break through into the unconscious mm-hmm. that unconscious layer, because consciously I could, I, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty conscious and aware of things and my patterns and all of that. But it was like, unconsciously, I wanted to really get deep. So that's why I started learning about epigenetics and, mm. the, you know, bioenergetic field and water holds memory, <laughs> you know, and, and um, our DNA and ancestral memory and just all of that. Uh, and that's when I was led into the spiral. Okay. All right. So I was not anything. I was still working for a private business at the time that I I found spiral and I will tell you, this is when I was floored. I was totally floored again, just like I was in that office with the black and white whiteboard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, one of my, my imprints, which I don't know, does your audience know about spiral and how it works? I haven't gone into that with them probably because I don't, I mean, I still use emotional clearing, but at this point I'm not taking people through the actual like spiral process. And, and this podcast is, is really new, but, um, yeah, feel free to kind of enlighten us. (laughs) Well, you can, if you'd like to, but basically, um, one of my imprints, the spiral just gets to the bottom It just gets to the, the root, the weed of your limiting beliefs and, and blocks. One of my blocks was, um, that first incident that I told you about mm-hmm. that the very first physical incident. Mm-hmm. And I was floored because in spiral, you're able to, to, um, figure out the age in which this happens, the imprint. Okay. So and, someone was muscle testing and this memory came up without you even telling like this age and this time came up without you telling them. Yeah. The age and the time, but mm-hmm. there was no memory. Oh, there was no memory. memory of it. There was no memory of it. You'd blocked it, it out. Was, yeah. And it was, um, it, we were actually working on, um, oh, it was the anger. It was anger and rage and all that, like that, like anger, rage. Wait, what is it? I can't remember. <laughs> Level three. As it, it, um, so it's the third chakra where we're going into yeah. like power and independence. Yeah, so pride, anger. Anyway. So 
it was after that session that I was contemplating it and I was just like, oh, what could that have been? What could that have been? And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, I have completely blocked out that memory. How could I have blocked out a memory that was the very first time that I was very violently physically attacked, should have gone to the doctor that, that bad, you know, that extreme. And I don't even know about it. Yeah. Which, and then that, oh, which we know now with trauma work, that's actually really common to not yeah. remember. Right. <laughs> yeah. To completely disassociate. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, w- I sat there and I went, oh my gosh, that means there's so much in my unconscious awareness mm-hmm. that, that I have, how do you know if you don't know? Mm-hmm. So then that's when I, I started diving into what does it take to be a spiral practitioner? Because literally after I went through the spiral then I was able to release those unconscious blocks and beliefs and really do the work there, um, my entire life transformed yeah, in 100%. a very fast way. Mm, 100%. Mm-hmm. And I know there's so many modalities out there that actually do this. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love. That's what I love is that there's all these modalities that actually go into the unconscious mm. to really yeah. see what's going on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is the unconscious. It's the mind body connection and it is, it is the basis of somatic work and is really understanding what's stored in our bodies at a cellular memory. And that's that, that cellular memory and what's stored in our body is 80% of what's impacting our mind. Mm -hmm. And so we have all these stories, all this cellular memory, all this neural pathway wiring that is impacting us and it's making us live our lives and all the conditioning that maybe we don't want to be living our lives that way or have these unconscious stories that aren't serving us that we don't necessarily need. And you move through those, whether it's through the spiral or another modality, it's like you actually get to be in your conscious and live your life the way you want to live. So oftentimes with this work comes major life changes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which you and I have both experienced. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I, I think that's like, you know, I feel like I'm totally in a different, like you can feel my energy is different now. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I'm so lit up even talking about the life that I've created for myself now. Because again, I was in, I will just tell you again, I was in a happy, I was in a successful life Mm. again, you know, when I found the spiral modality and I was just doing it for self-development work and just kind of like, all right, let's, you know, my kids, my children are are growing up. So let me start to pursue some of my interests now. Um, And it was, it blew my mind how much I was still conditioned and I'm still living this life. So yes, I was in a marriage. Yes, I was in, you know, again, owned my own home, had two dogs at this point, two children, you know, successful career still, you know, all the things, even though I was dealing with all the other stuff, but, you know, family, friends, you know, all that. But now I look back on who I was before and I was a shell of a person mm. before I ever, like I didn't have this fire. 
Mm -hmm. I didn't have this fire. I didn't have this passion. I didn't have this, this light. And it's because I still had all that conditioning in an unconscious way. Yeah. I would have never shared my story. I would have Mm -hmm. never told anybody what we were going through on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Even so five years ago, you know, (laughs) I'm so glad you are. Cause I really, really think that a lot of people that might be experiencing abuse or might be experienced, like are relating to our conversation around the unconscious patterns and the conditioning, right? Like, um, I know there's people that relate to this and are experiencing this now, maybe are working through this and, you know, just a testament, I was kind of saying earlier, like it wasn't easy. My transformational process of, of my healing work and uncovering what was in the subconscious and all my conditioning, like it was not easy. And so anyone going through this right now might be relating like, yeah, this is hard stuff. This isn't easy. <laughs> it is hard stuff. It really is. And this is, it's also what I love about it though. I've actually come to love and, um, I have a, I have a love. Let me put it that way. I have a love for when trying times, when I'm in the middle of trying, when I'm in the middle of the storm, mm-hmm. I'm always like, now I can see it to where I'm like, okay, I have to get through this in order to be this completely different version of myself. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's funny because, you know, we were saying that in the beginning of the podcast of it feels like lifetimes ago since we've known each other. And it's been like just only since 2019. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there's been so much growth as we've, you know, as we've gone deep into the challenges. And what I love about the type of work that you do and the type of work that I do is that we're not afraid to go into those deep, dark places anymore. Mm-hmm. In fact, the second that I have something happening and I can feel the pain, I go even deeper because I don't want to put a bandaid on it. Yeah. I want to be able to heal this at a deep cellular generational level. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. <clears throat> and just to speak also of, I mean, you and I are in a, in a little side group on telegram, but so I've already shared this with you, but to share this with our audience that, um, through all the deep work, anyone can do deep work. Anyone can work through the subconscious. Anyone can, um, go through the spiral. What makes the difference is the integration yes, and the practice of actually showing up differently. Like the actual action of, okay, I have this thing. I see this pattern. I see this way. And I'm, I'm going to make that choice. I'm in the eye of the storm. I'm going to make that choice to show up differently. And, you know, it's one of the things I love about you and have come to really respect with you and some of the other women in this group is that we're surrounded by people doing deep spiritual work. And I'm going to put that in quotation marks. And then shit hits the fan or their life gets hard or something happens and I'm taken back like, wait a minute, (laughs) where is all this like work that we've done? Like the point of doing this work for me is so that I can show up a more compassionate, loving human being and modeling that for other people, modeling this like this open heart and this deep, deep compassion and like 
to me, that's what's going to change and heal the planet, really. Mm-hmm. Coming from a place of love, right? Like, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, it just goes to like, oh, that's why I started this podcast. Is I'm like, why? Why do some people like make it through the eye of the storm and some people don't, you know, and, and you're one of those people that like made it through the eye that keeps making it through the eye of the storm over and over and over and, and did with this really abusive relationship. You know, I'd like to speak on that part on, you know, I think the important part, yes, we have, you know, our, our telegram chat and that's, that's what's so important. Like, yes, integration, but also, yes, that support, mm-hmm. like really looking at who, who are you in relationships with? Mm-hmm. Are they helping you rise? And are mm-hmm. they seeing you? Mm-hmm. Cause people could say they're authentic and be real all day long and you can be authentic and you can be real, but you can also be in that place with love. Mm-hmm. And you can even, this is what I love about our friendship is that you can call me out on whatever I'm doing. And I love that about you. I want you to do that because I'm going to trust and respect you when you're doing that (laughs) because you do it from a place of love. You do it from a place of love. And also, you know, I think the other piece of that is when people ask too, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of times that nobody wants to hear what, what we might be able to see it, like see when somebody's in their stories and in their patterns, but I love how we have this relationship where we'll say, Hey, are you open for me to share? (laughs) Are you like, are you open for me to share? Like what I can see, what my perspective is of this or whatever. And it really just, it, it helps. I have so much respect for you yeah, and the work that you do and our relationship. And thank you. Yeah. Mm Yeah, I'm definitely not perfect. There's definitely times where I like my, my, uh, reaction is quicker than my weight to respond <laughs> neuropathway. And sometimes I say things and I'm like, Oh, I forgot to ask if this was okay. Oh. <laughs> if they wanted to hear me. <laughs> I don't ever, I don't ever see that in you. I'll be honest. I don't see that. in you. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Part of that deep work. So Oh my goodness. Well, this is such an awesome conversation. And, um, for people just to kind of wrap it up, I'll ask two questions. One, is there anything you want to share with our audience? Like any last message? And then I'll have you lead into say people want to work with you. Where can people find you? If someone wants to go through the spiral with you, if someone wants to join, I know you have a couple group things going on. So just if people are intrigued and want to know more about you, how do we find you? Hmm. So I would just like to say thank you for listening. Thank you for allowing me to tell this story and the audience for listening. Um, really the biggest thing, you know, we all have our intuition. We all have our higher self. And it doesn't matter what situation you're in or... Um, what you may or may not know. Just always ask yourself, feel into, we've been, we're so dis- disassociated with everything now with the body. That's like, 
feel into, is this right for you or is this not? Especially if you're in a situation of gaslighting, that's really common in domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Is, does this make you feel good? Is this where you want to go? Is this where you want to be? Is it taking you a step further into the type of life that, that lights you up? Mm-hmm. And that's, yes, it's either yes or no. Does this, does this help you live a life that lights you up? Because even in my most challenging moments now, those moments are still lighting me up. Mm-hmm. I know they're right for me. I know that I'm aligned because they're, even the dark moments are still beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. Love it. So I have, I actually have a program right now. It's actually a membership. It's a revolving door membership that's lighting me up <laughs> and it's called say yes to soul. And it really is, you know, as I do this work, I specialize in, in um, domestic violence and in domestic abuse survivors and human trafficking survivors. But also it's really just anybody who's wanting to learn how to create and cultivate because you can create a life that you love and then it can fall apart just as fast as you built it. So it's really, you know, actually sustaining this life mm. and building this field of information around you, like sustaining and cultivating a frequency and a, and a life that, that lights you up. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. Everybody can do this. Everybody can. So anyway, there's a membership. You can find me on my website, lauriekinsey.com. Um, you can also, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, all the areas, but right now you can actually join the membership for a dollar. First month is a dollar. What? Uh-huh. How long are you running this? <laughs> Just in case I'm like slow at getting this podcast out. <laughs> forever and ever. At the moment, it's forever and ever. <laughs> wow, that's awesome, Lori. A dollar. Yeah. I mean, you and- can't put that down. You can't like pass that up. Because I just want to serve. I just want to serve. I want to show people that, yes, you can. You can do this. Everybody can do this. And so we do emotional clearing in there. Um, You literally bust through your blocks and limitations, and you literally start to build this life that lights you up Mm -hmm. in all areas of your life, financially, health, relationships, all the things. So it's just been so fun. Awesome. So that's awesome. I'll put your website and your Instagram and your Facebook in the show notes so people can click on there directly to find you. And of course, I'm happy to connect anyone with, with you if you want to reach out to me. Um, yeah, I think that's everything, Lori. Thank you so, so much. I want to say one more thing. Yeah. If anybody wants to work with you, <laughs> because I have personally done somatic work with and clearing um, all kinds of different things with Lisha. She's amazing. She's one of uh, the experts that I always, I actually refer people to. Um, and, you know, you've helped me get to where I am today too. You've been mm-hmm. a huge part of that. So thank you. Thank you, Lori. Acting mm-hmm. as a true supporter. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, wait a minute, we got to talk about you. <laughs> yeah, because I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here doing this, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't without the work that you and I've done together. So awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so, so much. Wow. I don't know about you, but after I went back and listened to this podcast or the piece with Lori where I interviewed her, 
my heart was glowing. She's such a beautiful soul, and this conversation really left me in awe of just what people could overcome in this world, and when they overcome it, like the possibilities of how we can show up and the ripple effect that is possible. The ripple effect that we have no idea that we're making on other people when we show up from a place of love and resiliency. Thank you so much for tuning in today. As always, I'm open to your reflections, comments. If you'd like to be a guest on my podcast because you have a story to share or an experience that you'd like to spread, please let me know. Please reach out to me. And as always, you can find me through my name, Leisha Nelson, on my website, leishanelson.com, on my Instagram, which is Leisha Nelson, and of course, Facebook, which is Leisha Nelson. You've also been hearing me talk a little bit about my Telegram channel. So if you're curious about that, check that out with the link below. I'm loving showing up in a more intimate group where I'm able to share some deeper insights, whatever's alive for me that day or in the moment. And it really is a great way to be in a community with me and other women. And we talk about all things resiliency and especially focusing on the nervous system, attachment styles, womb healing, birth imprints. We have some fun in there. So Check out the link below if you'd like to join that and I'll see you guys next time. Mm -hmm.